Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another installment of Innovation Crush. It's me, Chris Denson, your gracious host. I'm going to apologize to you because I, I kind of lost my voice. Um, this whole South Sounds like Southwest you got your voice party. to me. Uh, well, no, this is this is not a version. This is a different version of the voice. This is like, oh, it's four o'clock in the morning. I should leave. Um, voice. <laughs> That's but, South by. But um, we are broadcasting here live from Walmart Spark VIP Lounge, um, and so we're very thankful to have Jean Case with us here today. Say hello, Jean. Hey, Chris. Well, I'm grateful to be here. Thanks for having me. No, I'm probably way more grateful. Than <laughs> all you. right, let's argue over. <laughs> humble fight. Humble fight. <laughs> Um, first of all, Case Foundation, 20 years. Happy birthday. Thank you. Happy thank anniversary. We're out here <laughs> celebrating. Our theme is Get in the Arena. All right. What's and, and, and explain the Get in the Arena theme. What's sure, the sure. Well, you know, we've been at this work in the foundation for about 20 years. We've taken a lot of movements forward. Um, and one thing that we find is there's nothing like the power of an energized citizenry jumping in and getting engaged in causes and issues that they care about. So we're out here in all different kind of ways, including a Case Foundation Lounge, where we're giving people the opportunity to say how they're going to get in the arena. That's super. I like. I want to get in the arena. You, you come. In fact, there's a really there's a cool series of experiences. We have VR for good. We have a 360 video we're doing. It's a lot of fun. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, 20 years. What what did you think you were going to be doing 20 years ago, and what are you doing now? <laughs> like what? <laughs> well, you know, actually, it turns out, I, so I have crossed sectors in my career. I first came to Washington, believe it or not, working in politics. I came working for President Reagan. Ah. But um, after I did that job for a while, there was this new startup that was happening down the street, and the kind of stuff that they were talking about doing just completely jazzed me. I really thought I was going to spend my career working to empower other people. And when I heard about what they were doing, it was like, whoa, that could democratize access to ideas and information and right. communication in all kinds of powerful ways, probably more than being a staffer in the Reagan administration. <laughs> okay, <laughs> So I hopped over to technology, and I spent a, a long time there. And I ultimately ended up with this uh, startup that was to become America Online or AOL, as many people know. It's it. like the ultimate American startup. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, you made an interesting point, uh, being in government versus being a you know on the entrepreneur side right and you felt like you could make more of an impact did, by going totally. on the business side what what was the difference or what is the difference I imagine not much has changed so yeah, between yeah. The two. well I still think you know I really want to encourage anyone that's listening to think about a public sector role because we need talent in the public sector in a very real way one of the things I'm really happy about is you know in the Obama administration we started the US digital services that enables people to come out of the private sector and spend a little time serving in the public sector and then go back to their careers. Mm. I think we need more innovative models like that to bring people out of the private sector. But I loved the time I spent in the public sector, but nothing like I loved the time, you know, building a great company and ultimately a service that was part of the internet revolution. What was it about you that, you know, that resonated with you? And right. like, like why? Yeah, like, you're like hey, what man. got you jazzed? Because I mean, it, you was, like, it sounds like you had a, a good job. You I know? had a great <laughs> job <laughs> so and a great title, like, and I was way ooh. too young for both of those, okay? <laughs> um, so it was early in my career, but no, really. I mean, I sort of had a sense that my true north was that I wanted to work to empower people. And I think if you had talked to me when I was in high school or in college or in those early days, I never would have guessed that maybe the most powerful way to do that or one of the most powerful ways was to help build a great company that could 
bring opportunity and access to a lot of people. Right. Because remember, they just didn't exist. It was a whole new thing. Yeah. So um, I really was thrilled when I found that that was a, a path and an opportunity. And then, of course, after I left AOL, my husband and I started the Case Foundation, our family foundation, and that's the job I've been at for 20 years, longer than I've been at any other job in this world. <laughs> um, and I really can't believe it. But yes. um, no, here we sit. The job of your name is pretty, <laughs> pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so... I guess if, if you could name or think of a crown jewel project from the Case Foundation and you're like, oh my gosh, that was the one that kind of encompassed everything that we believe in. And I know you've created some pretty massive movements, yeah. but um, is there anything that sort of stands out? Sure. Well, let me just say that, you know, we decided early on that our focus was going to be that we invest in people and ideas that can change the world. So for 20 years, we've been going out there trying to find them, listening to people like you, and oh. you know, different seriously, uh, <laughs> different platforms around that can you know point the way, and then people we meet, et cetera. But one of our earliest initiatives was around the digital divide, because not surprisingly, I'd come out of technology, right? My husband had come out of technology, and as we looked around, we saw yes, it was a cool path to access an opportunity, right. but it was too limited. It was really limited to a precious few in the nation and we wanted to make sure that this revolution that was coming didn't pass by a lot right. of people so um, our first initiative was called power up and through that we partnered with a bunch of tech companies um, and we put a thousand after-school technology centers in low-income communities around wow. the nation so we felt really good about that work yeah. and I still feel good about it today by the way we are still at the digital divide issue um, supporting uh, companies now around the world in places where there isn't equal access Super cool one in Africa, headquartered in Nairobi called Brick, mm, that brings yes. Wi-Fi to the last mile. If you know Eric Kurzman, he was uh, co-founder of Ushahidi, right. which was the crowdsourcing information that a lot of people learned about during the whole disrupted Kenya election. So. That's pr I mean, that's pretty awesome, and, and I mean one of the things I love is you know I, I, what the internet did and what your work has done is literally connected a bunch of people. So the ideas that we bump into, the people Correct. that we bump into that we would never have seen. Completely. I mean, if you even if you, even if you just look at like how fashion has changed, yeah, right? right. Um, and that's just you know a cultural touch point. But you know as these other communities start to come online, I, what do you anticipate is going? Are we going to see more of that? Like what? The, oh yeah! What's the phase three of oh, yeah. more people connected? That is, um, we couldn't be more excited. But you know, we're out here talking about our work in inclusive entrepreneurship, and just like I talked about the digital d divide, making sure that there weren't some people left behind as this wave was sweeping the nation probably unintentional, but that has happened in the entrepreneur world. Right. Um, when you look at the data, it's pretty arresting, actually. Um, last year in venture capital, 90% of venture capital went to men. Only 1% went to companies with an African-American founder. And 78% of all venture capital went to three places, New York, Massachusetts, and California. That's crazy. Leaving 47 states to get their quarter of the pie. And so when you think about something like an electoral map and you hear people say, you know, we're feeling a little left behind here in what right. you call flyover states so pejoratively, the fact of the matter is they have been left behind. They don't have the same paths to access and opportunity. 
So, you know, what we think is any investor is looking for an untapped market opportunity. Right. And by bringing a more inclusive focus to the building of great companies, what we're going to find is the building of great new innovations that, frankly, the elites on the coast aren't going to come up with. So as an investor, I'm super excited yeah. about that. You know, we talked about brick. Well, that's Eric understanding that the last mile in Africa is a big old lift, okay? Right. He built a company, you know, to take care yeah, of that. that's a great um, point. We went all over Africa and made investments throughout the trip because, you know, they're basically people living problems and building solutions for them. And what we need to do is just find all those pockets of innovation that address uh, sort of problems and challenges that haven't been addressed by our innovation culture today. Uh, along those lines, like, what have you learned about perspectives? Because there's so many, I, th I think the more you collide with people, the more you interact with them, you start to reach, you know, a, a point of universal truth. Yeah. Uh, and, right. But what have you learned in your journeys, like contacting so many different people in different parts of the world and yeah. access and so on? Well, something? the power of the entrepreneurial spirit is a really powerful thing. And by the way, it can be applied in many ways beyond just building a company. I mean, we've seen this in nonprofits, and frankly, we've tried to drive some of that even in places like federal agencies where we've worked with them closely to, to look at entrepreneurial approaches to solving problems. But probably, you know, the biggest takeaway really is this. If you have a diverse table, and I'm calling it a table, but a, you know, a diverse set of folks looking at issues, you're going to come up with more innovations and more possibilities because of it. I mean, really one of the reasons I could understand instantly the power of the Internet is because I was raised by a single mom. And in high school, all, I went to a private school on full scholarship. All the kids I knew had this fancy set of encyclopedias. And so I used to have to go over to their house or to the library to get access to the same knowledge. My mom finally decided she would buy encyclopedias. And back then, for a hard copy set of encyclopedias, it was $400. <laughs> she spent yeah. three years paying off a set of encyclopedias, oh which were out of date. The, on her last payment, right, okay? right. <laughs> because they'd been printed the world by had changed by that Exactly, time. exactly. <laughs> so one of the early things that came along in the internet was an online encyclopedia, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, talk about leveling <laughs> exactly. the playing field. I lived that problem. I know what that problem's like. But if you fast forward the tape to today, you know, we, there's a by bunch By the way, of, did you give your mom her $400 back? I did. Okay, good. She right, made good on it in the long okay. run. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, we see so many cool entrepreneurs. You know, there's one we like to talk about because I think it really underscores new innovations. Um, a company called Blendor. And this is an African-American founder, a female who was raised by a mom on welfare. Um, and she, you know, found a great path to opportunity for education. She ended up at Stanford and MIT. Then career-wise, she um, went to Lockheed Martin and Deloitte. But as she looked around in the engineering field, she realized there just were not a lot of people like her. And she said, I can do something about this. So she created this company. She blinds the data on resumes. So today she has clients like Google and Microsoft and Salesforce who are using her product basically to ensure a more diverse workforce in engineering. That's it's awesome. a really cool story. Yeah. That's, I mean, no, it's incredible. It, I love the, like, and it's a simple solution, right? I, you know, I think most people think of innovation or entrepreneurship, like you need some really far out right, there idea. Right. But it's something, you know, it's almost like in the entertainment business, they write what you know. Exactly. Right? There's something that you experience and you're like, oh, you know what? They, they, totally. I have a solution right here in front of me. Totally. And I would say to anyone, even sitting with kids, sometimes, you know, if you're at a dinner table with kids, your own kids or otherwise, or you're, you know, with a young group, 
challenge them. What challenges do you see out there? And what would you do about it if you could? Right. And, you know, obviously that question leads to problem solving, leads to, hey, man, I maybe I can start a nonprofit or maybe I can start a campaign or I could do a startup. Right. You know? Um, so the resume is a starting point, right? And yeah. kind of like the lessening unconscious bias, which is a really great area of focus for you. Right. Um, how much more do we have to go? <laughs> well, so. you know, I think that let's talk about unconscious bias a little because we haven't drilled into it too much. But, you know, the whole idea of unconscious bias, and there's a lot of data out here. TechCrunch did a great piece on it that says, look, uh, no matter who you are, it's human nature that our networks and sort of who we kind of relate to are people similar to us. The same is true in investing and the same is true in venture capital today. Um, and if you peel back the onion and you look at the top 100 venture firms in the United States, 93% of them have white male uh, investing partners. So we shouldn't be surprised that they feel most comfortable with people just like them. Right. So it doesn't even have to be an intentional thing in any way. But what it does take is to be intentional now in changing that up. Right. And the Rule good number news, three from your TED Talk. Oh, look at you, Chris. See? Thank you See? for bringing that up. Yeah, <laughs> no, I did get into be it in the TED Talk. Be intentional in changing <laughs> this, man. And like, I even find myself, I have to be intentional constantly to make sure I'm mixing it up out there. It's too easy for me to get in my bubble and knock it out. Right. And that's really what we're asking people to do. But again, part of it is social justice, no question. Yeah. But a big part of it is killer opportunities out there if you broaden the tent of who yeah. you're talking to, who you're listening to, and the kind of solutions that they can bring forward. Many of these markets totally untapped today. Yeah. Um, so it's exciting. It's, it's, it's an exciting economic opportunity for both the U.S. and around the world. Well, even like carrying the, the storytelling piece of that, because there's a value proposition to everyone involved, right? Right. But I think if I'm in my comfort zone, that's it's exactly what it is, you know, right. a comfort zone. Exactly. So how do you go about the storytelling to encourage? Because I, I would imagine the entrepreneurs you can find, yeah. you know, all day long. But the people who have the capital to help those individuals, you know, how do you go about changing their minds in a way that actually moves the needle and they actually get out and explore yeah. like you? Like well, we I think to. the good news is I find that the folks I'm talking to, and this includes the most marquee names in investing, okay? But the folks that I'm talking to, as I look at the data, there's a certain jaw-dropping that takes place because I think even many of them didn't understand exactly how extreme the situation has become right. and clearly recognize that it really isn't a healthy nation where you know there's three places in the United States that are getting all the jet fuel, right. that all this great innovation we celebrate, we've been doing it with one arm behind our back because 50% of the population's been left on the sideline. So I think they really get it. And then sort of our work really is to move in and to create almost like the eHarmony connections of, okay, oh, okay. you ready so you to do, do something about part this? Of it. Yeah, do you know about this accelerator that's, sure. you know, strictly, so like Power Moves in New Orleans, all African-American, okay, Digital Undivided, all Latina women and African-American women entrepreneurs. Um, so we really do begin to sort of uh, make the ecosystem that is there, believe it or not. Right. There are things happening. They're just not transparent, so people don't know how to find them. So once they're willing, man, we make sure we try to activate <laughs> them. Like, come on, keep going. Come on. Hey, come keep on, like don't going, let go going my jogging, hand. like, hey, come on, you can do it. Just <laughs> um, I think when you have like such a complex problem that you're breaking down, and, and that maybe it's not complex, but it has a lot of moving parts, it and it's numbers wise, it's massive. Yes. Um, what, do you have to take steps to even if, whether it's in your own mind or in your day to day, like of simplification? Because yeah. I think you know it can anything that's undaunting probably means that I'm going to like step away from it because or undaunting that's not a word. yeah anything that's daunting. Right. I know what you <laughs> mean. Yeah. yeah, right. So yeah, I mean, I think there are. I think this is early days for this movement, and I think it's going to take sort of 
everybody getting in the boat and eventually everybody rowing together. Um, but right now, I think we really are benefited by a lot of data that is telling us what's happening and then will also inform us about the progress. Right. Um, and so I think if we stay focused on making sure we're capturing uh, the data that does exist around where the market is, reporting that out and staying active and trying to create these connections within the ecosystem will be okay. Do people really know what to do with data? Like, I feel like data is such a big thing and there's so much of it. Yeah. Um, and to break it down and, and extract what's relevant to you at any given moment. Hey, like, come on, you're like the innovation guy. So here's, <laughs> here's what I say about data. I have a love-hate relationship with data. Right. Because I love it when there's data there to tell me what to do. And I sort of really hate it when there's no data. But I realized, you know what innovation is? Innovation is your willingness to be the data. Because if you're trying to innovate, it means no one do has done what you're doing before. Right. So good luck finding that data. You're going to actually be the data. Right. And, you know, I think that, uh, so I, I see data as both a good thing and a bad thing. I think for large firms particularly, or people who get really comfortable, they only want to move if they have data. Okay, I get that. So we're sure. movement builders, and we know what we need to bring sure. to them. But to innovators, they don't need data. They know they're creating the data by you know innovating and trying something new and being willing to fail and taking a risk. Yeah. Um, and so data, I think, you know, works both in some cases for innovation and against innovation. Well, so it, it's like, it, and I think it takes a special type of individuals or the or a diverse group of, in a room right. to say to max, match the data with the soft skill, right? With the, yeah. the IQ, with the EQ, if you will. Right, right. that's right. Um, do you work with in, any of the organizations that you touch on sort of that emotional quotient piece? Because I think there's a oh, lot that goes into- Most definitely, into, the whole empathy, compassion, most definitely. And I have to tell you, one of the most, um, uh, what do I want to say? Moving moments for me in movement work. I told you to go to cry. <laughs> no, I'm <just> kidding. <laughs> was, um, you know, I went to the Fortune Conference uh, in December that was in Rome. It was the Fortune 100 CEOs. And you have to remember where we were in December of 2016. We were just coming off of the presidential election. Sure. And I think, A, that election really surprised a lot of people, not just the choice, but the way it all went down. And more importantly, the messages that came out of it, which is these, as we talked about before, these flyover states feeling sort of disenfranchised and right. feeling left behind. Um, the CEOs that were there, I think if you look at the electoral map as data, they said, oh my gosh, we had no idea. We had no idea. We, we didn't intentionally leave anyone behind. Right. But now we have to double down and make sure we're in those places where people said they felt left behind. And to me, I just don't think there would have been that kumbaya moment from you know leading CEOs across the right. nation had it not been, in this case, the data was the election. Okay, uh, But that was the moment. And it wasn't a political thing. It was the realization that somehow we had all failed our nation as leaders in not making sure we provided equal access to the good life. This is interesting because, you know, I think we thought we were doing a good job. And I think most people, yeah, we, yeah. we are, you know, guilty as charged. Like, yeah. okay, yeah, right. let's see. The, and I know there's obviously, there's always like a smaller hurdle or a hurdle right. in front of you. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, just the, that idea of like, all right, we still have a long way to go. I felt like, and we talked about this earlier, the um, how the industry sort of talks to itself, especially as technology has become more prevalent. Like no everybody points to Silicon Valley, New York, no LA, question. and then no one's thinking about these other places as, right. as hotbeds. Exactly. Exactly. Um, how do you bring those, you know, yeah. the, the center of the country, if not other communities abroad? Yeah. Well, here's why I think the train has left the station on this one, even though we don't realize it yet, and I think a good way. 
you know, some of the market sectors that have, haven't really been fully disrupted yet, okay, or even disrupted at all. Think about healthcare, think about education, think about fintech, et cetera. You know, you're not going to waltz into those markets like has been done in the last wave of innovation right. with no background, no knowledge, you know, et cetera. Just because you're a coder, it doesn't mean you're going to get these highly <laughs> complex things that right. usually touch regulation, okay, and waltz in and, and do something remarkable. It's not going to work that way. I think what we're going to see is those kind of innovations are going to come from the places where people have a deep understanding. So I'll give you an example. We see New Orleans as a terrific ed tech innovation market. Hmm. Why? Because after Katrina, they had to totally reinvent their school system. You had thousands of Teach for America students go down there. You had educators who had been you know, at the table a long time making things happen in New Orleans working together. And so a lot of those folks came out of that experience and right. they said there's a better way and they started companies to address like ed tech, basically. So I think we're going to see a lot of that continue to come from New Orleans, which, by the way, in case you haven't noticed, isn't in California, Massachusetts, yeah, yeah. or New I, York. I did <laughs> or, notice that. <laughs> or like in healthcare, <laughs> you know. Nashville is a hotbed for healthcare. You know, a lot of the major hospital systems are headquartered there, et cetera. I think we're going to see a lot coming out of there. And frankly, from places like Nebraska around ag tech. I mean, hmm. good luck, you know, thinking <laughs> about ag tech if you're working <laughs> right. in Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, chances are you don't really know. Like, you actually have to have spent some time like literally out in the field <laughs> to disrupt that space so i Good think one. yeah i think that um these sectors are ripe for innovation i think they're going to come from non-obvious places but places that when you really do see where they're coming from steeped in knowledge and background um and that'll make the difference in the next innovation um as you empower other entrepreneurs or other people to become entrepreneurs how do you teach them to recognize their entrepreneurial talent because I think a lot of us we were, I was talking about this yesterday with Ben Parr you know there's people who complain about a thing and then there's people who do something about the thing right. those people that do something about things like hey I don't like getting taxis so right. I'm going to figure out how to get car you know people right. with regular cars to make money and to, um, to d democratize that market but how do you go about like I don't know training or inspiring those yeah. individuals to, to well make? first of all we spend a lot of our time trying to inspire people to think about how they can you know get in the arena and address challenges and one of the really exciting ways to, to create a new company. But you're right. A lot of people have been raised with the belief that an entrepreneur is born, that you know they don't see themselves as having the potential to build right. a great company. Um, I think, though, entrepreneurship is infectious. And so um, one of the things we try to do is tell great stories to people who are non-obvious entrepreneurs when they got started and let them be really authentic about what their motivations were. And we did talk before, and you and I said, or well, at least we talked about, you know, my own personal belief is there's no better time to take a big risk than either when your back's against the wall or you have nothing to lose. Yeah. Because, you know, th th that's where we see people really stretch it in terms of taking a risk. And the most dangerous place is when you get really comfortable right. and you've had your successes and you're in your bubble and now you don't want to lose anything. So therefore you're unwilling to take a risk or fail. And for me personally, you know, my life has been a series of blessings I have to constantly push myself to take risks and accept that failure is an option. Right. Um, and I've learned it the hard way. And, um, you know, but it really, it's almost like treating it like training a muscle. I got to force myself to right. do it. Um, too easy to just say, hey, I'll just ride like all the stuff that's worked and not try anything else or new. How do you go about doing that? Like what's, how do you, how do you sharpen your skills or yeah. get, attain new ones? Well, I'll tell you, we did this campaign called Be Fearless at the Case Foundation where we took a look at transformative and breakthrough 
um, innovations around causes and movements through history. Um, and we found some principles were present. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, I mean, you know these, Chris, uh, basically having a big bet, an idea that you can do something about something. Right. Um, and not being incremental or small in your thinking, but really trying to be transformative in your thinking. Um, Risk-taking. Yeah. Partnering. But probably the biggest is, um, you know, the willingness to fail, to accept that failure is an option. And I always think it's fascinating, you know, when you look at Silicon Valley, which we've talked about a lot, you know, failure isn't a shame in Silicon Valley. It is understood that it's necessary to drive innovation. Right. But you leave Silicon Valley, and especially if you get Nobody into older... Nobody wants to fail. Fail no, sounds awful. Everybody hates failure. Yeah. I hate failure, okay? But the bottom line is, as we've said, if you're trying to innovate, you're trying something new. Who bats a thousand in this world? Right. It doesn't exist. You know, and um, Einstein said, failure is success in progress. Yeah. And I totally believe that's true. So I try to embrace that, meaning that if I'm not taking risks, and at the Case Foundation, we adopted for some number of years to make sure we were staying true to ourselves, this green, yellow, red light thing in the stuff that we were doing. Hmm. So at the end of the year, when we'd assess our impact or we'd assess our work, you know, if it's all great, that's green. If eh, we're not so sure, it's a yellow. Yeah. And if, oh man, it's time to shut it down, it didn't work, that's a red. And I mandated that uh, we have a certain number of reds in our portfolio because if we don't, we're not trying hard. We're not right. doing radical enough stuff. We're not, you know what I mean, out so there I on the I found 10,000 ways not to make a light Correct. bulb. Correct. Thomas Edison. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. That's right. That's exactly no, right. No, but I also feel like there's this skill of resilience. I think once you go through a failure or a hardship, they, like, I, I think in a life sense, yes, you're like, okay, now I'm just going to go for it and take right. a risk. But I also think once you bounce back from that failure, like, the rest of them become a little easier. They do. They do. I think, though, you know, feeling like you have either a profile or a reputation can add certain pressure to that. Right. Um, you know, we launched a, a water initiative to bring clean water to uh, 10 sub-Saharan countries in Africa. And the day we launched, it was very high profile. I had uh, President Clinton to my left and First Lady Laura Bush to my right. Very high profile program. Um, really far-reaching, right. big bet opportunity. And uh, as we got started in it, about year two or three, things weren't going so well. And so we tried to course correct. We worked on it for a year or more and finally realized we just can't take this forward. Yeah. We have to acknowledge. And so we had a discussion internally, and you know, some of us were sweating bullets at the thought that this super high-profile thing that had been written about, there's a PBS piece on it, the whole deal. I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to tell the world we failed. And so I wrote a blog, and it was called The Painful Acknowledgement of Coming Up Short, in wow. which I just laid it out there, okay? And I remember my team was around me as, you know, we we're getting ready to publish, and I remember my finger over the button, and it's like, <laughs> do I really have yeah. to push go? <laughs> like, you just turned around slowly and looked at everybody's seat there. So yeah, so, no, no, I sent it, I sent it. You guys, really, you, you, you did. didn't see it's it? out there, trust me. Oh, there must have been a technical problem. Um, so anyway, it got sent, and I think the coolest thing happened as a result. Um, it felt like overnight, peers, particularly from philanthropy, but from other sectors too, started calling, writing, et cetera, saying, no one ever acknowledges that they fail. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. That was the genesis of our Be Fearless campaign. And so we started hosting fail fests where people oh, would nice. come and tell their stories <laughs> of what has and has not worked. Um, we usually have wine or beer because that helps the honesty question. I'll be there. <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> I'll be there early. <laughs> and, you know, we feel really good today about failure being an open discussion in our philanthropy sector, where it really felt like at least the philanthropy sector I came into, right. that just was a dirty word, and there was no acknowledgement if the things that you had put time and money after uh, yeah. didn't I love out. a good anti-case study. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm actually giving a talk called Almost Reality, which is at a VR conference. Oh. I'm going to give one or two case studies of VR projects that I worked on, uh-huh. and then the rest of it is going to be, hey, here's 10 ideas that didn't see the light of day and here's why man chris that you know, is so important and anyone listening if you can be authentic and talk yeah. about what doesn't work gosh that's a real <laughs> gift to the world so yeah. good for you that was oh, thank you I, but it's thank you I'm, I'm being fearless. i told you i'm gonna get that beer and wine there you go um so it, it sounds like you're in the business of exploring right and you just kind of go out and venture and see what's out there um watch watch the segue yeah um and then that geo explorer the national right. geographic society right. which you just became chairman what about yeah, a little year over ago. a year ago yeah, I'm sure. um congratulations thank it's you been a pretty epic what 20th anniversary it's 130 years 129 of national- years ah, of okay national geographic. 129 years almost there yeah um but uh tell us a little bit about your role there and sure. what that entails sure well i think everyone knows national geographic but we believe in the power of science and exploration and storytelling, Chris, to change mm-hmm. the world, right? Because you are changing the world with the storytelling that you do. Um, and, you know, one of the great things is because we have been around 129 years, we have this treasure trove of assets of things we've invested in through the years that we've supported, et cetera. But we never stop there. We just want to stay on the front lines of the unknown really taking risks, really funding things where the outcome isn't so certain. And frankly, to be honest with you, in science, there's less and less of that these days. Um, There's a lot of science you can get funded if you've sort of already proven what you want to go study. Right, right. (laughs) But if you just have this crazy idea, you know, good luck finding funding out there. It's hard to come by. And I'm very proud of National Geographic for staying true to its innovative roots this way. So that's a lot of funding that we do. But one of the really cool things that we do, we're the number one social media brand in the world. Um, So we have 66 million Instagram followers, for instance. We've had over 2 billion likes to our Nat Geo account. Um, But it's not just cute that it's social. We switched handles for a day? (laughs) Yeah. Densonology is now (laughs) Nat Geo. It's not just cool (laughs) that it's social and, you know, look at us, we're number one. The reason that's important is that allows us to put the spotlight and the megaphone on all those innovators and explorers out there who are doing amazing things. So um, even though it's a 129-year-old, we like to call ourselves a 129-year-old startup. And I believe we still have that ethos in the organization today. How do you, and that's, a, I mean, that's an interesting point. Like, how do you hold on to that sort of fearless spirit? Like, you, yeah, you mentioned, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but yes, 100, 100 plus years of any organization, right. Levi's, for instance, right. right? It's the same thing. It's like, how do we continue? And they just make pants. Right. right. So, but right. they are coming up with, you know, Project Jacquard, which totally. is a connected jacket. And, and looking at water and right. like doing all kinds the of stuff. The whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, how do you retain that spirit or reinvigorate it, you know, after yeah. you've been at it for a while? Well, I can tell you, even from a Case Foundation standpoint, you, you can you can never get comfortable. Um, even we, as an organization, have to sort of re-up things every three or five years and question, you know, are we staying true to the DNA that we really wanted, the entrepreneurial spirit? Um, at National Geographic, I give great credit to both the trustees and the CEO, mm-hmm. who, you know, we literally have kumbaya moments around that board table man and you know we say we're taking a risk here are we in this together and we say to the ceo we've got your back okay we know you're taking a risk and if it doesn't work we're okay with that because this is where we want to be and i think those conversations have to happen and when we launched our be fearless work we had uh very soon twenty-five thousand pledges from around the nation to 
practice the Be Fearless wow. principles, yeah. I spent a lot of time with corporate boards, believe it or not, and nonprofit boards, really talking to them about, look, I know you don't feel, feel fearless and you're afraid of failure, but could you take 1% of your budget and make it about innovation? Could you do one thing this year? Yeah. Like what feels right to you based on what your risk tolerance is? And what I have to say about the wonderful, wonderful privilege of being chairman of National Geographic is the ethos is there to constantly be on the front lines of what's next. So you're just coming up on a year or just passing the year long mark. Um, a, a friend of mine, George Bratt, uh, mm -hmm. wrote a book called uh, First Time Leader. Um, and he talks about the failure rate of C-level executives when they t take on a new rail, a new role, yeah. um, because they're the company's not equipped, and there's this whole adopt uh, right, adoption right. period. Yeah. But one of his principles is um, talking about get in and get a quick win, right? right. To build trust and build rapport. Right. Um, did you employ that tactic, and and if so, like what yes, was one of your first in a pretty big way? But I don't count the win as mine; I count it as ours. Um, but yes, so National Geographic went through a transformation um, just about a year ago in which we created a new joint venture. We had been in a joint venture with Fox for 18 years to deliver the National Geographic channel. Mm. Um, and last year we decided to contribute all of our commercial properties into that new JV. Okay, so that leaves a pure play nonprofit that is the National Geographic Society, and then the National Geographic Partners is the venture. Wow. Here's the cool thing about it <laughs> from a business model standpoint. Overnight, we had a billion dollar endowment, and um, the business model now allows about $100 million to come over the transom every year from our revenue share and the partners, which is both securing and sustaining the mission of team National win. Geographic for a long time. <laughs> but honestly, to me, that was really the moment when I realized how fearless our board was. It would have been so easy to focus on the risks of that, you know, how, you know the potential brand, whatever, to that. But we knew at the end of the day we're there to secure and really grow the mission of National Geographic, and that's exactly what it's done. That's great. Um, I was going to read something from your bio, um, and I am going to read something from you. Well, please do. <laughs> Don't let me get As a senior it. executive at America Online Incorporated, Gene directed the marketing and branding effort that launched the AOL service, directed the communication strategy for taking the company public, and helped establish AOL as a household utility, um, which is a, a very, it's a lot of stuff in that sentence. Um, how much of that success or any success that you've you know, come across is serendipity versus like a long-term strategy and vision that you stick to? Yeah. So what wasn't serendipity was a heartfelt passion for the business we were building because as I said earlier, we were on a mission to democratize access for right. people. That was so real, Chris. If you'd walked the halls, you would have seen that. And I think I became convinced that if we could stay, you know, laser focused on our mission, we'd build a really successful company. But one thing I do, you know, you talked about like how you stand up and you talk about the failures as well as the things that work right. in your VR work. You know, when I get in front of college kids, they read this very illustrious sounding bio, and I say, <laughs> now let me tell you the true story. Well, just words, kids. <laughs> let me tell you the true right. story. All the ways I sort of went left here and went right there, you know. And I put up this sort of graph of success, and I show it going down and sideways and over. No, it was, it was really like a messy climb to any place I've been. Um, but what I ultimately learned, and it's largely because I think I am the age and the stage that I am, is that, man, those were the moments that defined all the great stuff, right? right? When, I, when I really thought maybe it was all over, 
I should have been paying attention because that was like the next step to something great. What's that kind of rock bottom mentality you, totally. you're reaching? Like, totally. all right, well, now it's time. Like I, I mentioned earlier, like I, I grew up in Detroit, and as often as I can, I'm actually on my way to the Michigan house after I leave here. Great. But as much as I can support that city, I, I do. Right. And I look at like, all right, mayor went to prison. You know, people <laughs> yes, left exactly. the city in droves. Right. And you're like, it's a tumbleweed town, and all of a sudden you've got you know tech There's communities and artists now. exactly. Totally. And so. It, but for years, it, you, all we saw was destruction porn, right? right. It was like, look exactly. at this abandoned school right. and, the, like, and this guy and this right. murder. But then all of a sudden, it's just like there's a rainbow. Right. And you're like, okay, this is this is. I think really that's good. right. And I think few mm. stories, I mean, obviously, I think we haven't been helped by some of these quick overnight successes that have happened in Silicon Valley because that usually isn't how <laughs> right. it's done, right? So AOL, it was um, the first internet company to go public. But it was a 10-year overnight sensation. I mean, there were near-death moments throughout those 10 years. Sure. You know, people had no idea what we are doing. We, you know, like, what is this stuff you're talking right. about, et cetera. So, you know, I just think that when you peel back the onion of success, you find it is a very crooked road. And I, I think if we we're more authentic with young people about that, it might actually inspire them then when they trip up along the way to say, oh, yeah. hey, man, I can keep going. This isn't the end of the world. It's going to make me stronger and better in the long run. Oh, yeah. And people, I think people also quickly forget how many times they've uh, come back from something. True. That could be like a broken leg, and you go back and do gymnastics right. again. Right, totally, you heal. good point. But yeah. then you go into a business, you don't, like you don't remember that muscle, right? You yeah. don't remember like, oh, that was a painful, like physically right. painful. That's right. a terrible metaphor. I'm sorry. Um, so <laughs> through all of this stuff, what's what's your one superpower? What's the Gene K superpower that's like, all right, this is what I feed into every situation, business, personal that I encounter. Yeah. I really love to empower people. Mm. I really do. I mean, I think that is my true north. And uh, as I look back on my career, as I said, across sectors and across jobs and uh, across different things I do, um, that's what jazzes me. And that's sort of the, um, that that's kind of what I stay focused on. And I feel like as long as we're true to that, um, it's going to be good. And so if you look at our movements, that's really, um, right. you know, the common element in almost everything that we've done. You're pretty calm to have so much stuff going on. I know there's teams and stuff that help and, and so on and so forth. Um, I, I, like makeover. No, just <laughs> I was going to say, if you ask my team, they I don't think they would call me calm. I have a little bit of ADD. I have a little bit of like... You know, I get, I get pretty excited, but I, I, I want to be excited because I want to be jazzed when I wake up in the day. Right, know? right. Um, so I, 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 I take it as a compliment that you think I'm calm. At least I mean, here. Okay. Maybe, maybe it's just right. the, the, the <laughs> weird feathers on the light bulbs. Um, I'm giving the audience a visual a visual wow, visualization they look of like where we birds, are. don't Isn't they? Isn't that crazy? Yeah, yeah really yeah, crazy. Um, so uh, the, what I was going to ask you is, like, with all the things that you have done and that you're looking to do, What's those? You know, what's one thing that's like in the back of your mind that you just can't get to right now, and you're like, oh, what, like you're itching to do, but you just haven't been able to, to grasp for it yet. Um, yeah. So it actually kind of touches on one of our movements, um, which is impact investing. So, you know, I really think that the way the world has developed has made a lot of sense, and I'm a big supporter of capitalism. Okay, I want to make that clear before I say what I say. But at the same time, many of our systems aren't working for all of us. Right. And I think we live in a remarkable time in which we could ask the question, is there a different or a better way? 
And you know, impact investing is this movement that's bringing forward new companies and new funds that are focused on bringing both a financial and a social return. You know, we have a generation, the millennials, and a segment of society, women, who are poised to inherit tens of trillions of dollars in the coming years, right. but they're already flexing their economic muscle as conscious consumers. I think if we all kind of, if we had sort of what I call everyday philanthropy or everyday change making, okay? What are the products we're buying? Where are we spending time? Who's getting our capital? Whether it's you know $2 at a time or $2 million right. at a time, right? This world would be a better place. It would be a more just place. It would be, we could level the playing field. But more importantly, I just think it'd be awesome. Okay? <laughs> I mean, it'd yeah. just be straight up awesome. <laughs> and so that's kind of what I hope I get to see in the years I have left on the planet, which is maybe just a little bit uh, a tilt so yeah. that we're focused on what really matters in the way we spend our time and our money. We use our energy and our talents. What's interesting, yeah, you go, you go back to that storytelling element of it, right? And like you pointed out some pretty daunting, you know, things and right. problems, but you have this amazing positive spirit about it. And the fact that you even use the word awesome, like yes. it doesn't, like a lot of people approach, you know, social causes, like from a, they're so passionate about it that it almost, feels like anger in yeah, a sense right. no, or I don't it's depressing have anger. Right, i can right. get i can get mad don't get me wrong I, yeah. no but i Not mostly I hope, I just no i just basically have a vision for you know a more beautiful and just world That's and great. i think most people do actually i don't meet many people who are just fine with the feeling that maybe someone doesn't get a fair shot yeah and as it comes to the american dream i'm passionate about everyone having an equal shot um, and that's why we're here, and that's what we've been doing, and we have a long way to go still, but I feel, uh, I feel really encouraged. All right. As, as we wind down, um, the show's called Innovation Crush. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to what you've seen in your travels and your day-to-day, -day, maybe something in your leisure that you currently have an innovation crush on. Like, what's that one thing that's out there that gave you goosebumps, or you're like, oh, my gosh, that was so awesome. Yeah. Well, I get goosebumps a lot. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm a walking batch of goosebumps. <laughs> um, you know, no, I, I just think there's this whole new generation of companies that give me goosebumps. We talked about some of them in this in this conversation we've had. But, you know, like there's this woman, Steph Spears, uh, who grew up with a welfare mom, and um, she saw her struggle to pay the power bill. I saw my mom struggle to pay the power bill. And, you know, instead of getting angry about that or instead of saying life isn't fair, you know, she created, as solar came along, you know, she looked at if that could be an option for her mom and was taken aback to realize, A, it wasn't economical, and B, her mom rents a house. So, right. like, you know, she's not going to be the one to decide if it gets solar or not. So she built these, you know, solar um, farms, basically, in low-income neighborhoods. And think about sort of the clean energy revolution. Yeah. I, you know, we're all excited about it. We don't realize that a huge swath of our population is left out of it. And Steph is solving that problem. So yeah. I get inspired and I get chills by people like Steph who see what could be a problem and says, hey, there is a cool opportunity there. Um, and I think that's really the uh, the central focus of what gets me jazzed. That's awesome. Uh, and also, I'd like with the step story that we talked about this earlier, but I love this idea that even in your TED talk, this is somebody that you showcased. Right. And you know, I, I was kind of like listening to it, and then these, I, I heard welfare mom, and then I looked at the screen, and I was like. She doesn't look like what I would expect as, you know, right, a exactly. welfare is. Correct. Right. So it's like kind of smashing a little bit of convention, you know. On purpose, Chris. Exactly. On purpose yeah. in our storytelling, right? Right. I think the power of storytelling to change the world is so huge. And I really give you great credit for what you're doing because I think people out there might go, huh, okay, yeah. I get it now. Maybe I can go do something. Yeah. Um, last but not least. Yeah. Complete this phrase for me. 
Oh, okay. Did Sam, did Sam tell you? Uh, no. Okay, all right. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Innovation to me is... Empowering. That's awesome. But yeah. it's very true, and it resonates in everything you've, you've yeah. done and said today. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. How can people find out more about what you're up to? Where right. do they go and so follow you? Some of the you? topics that we've hit on, you can find on casefoundation.org. Of course, nationalgeographic.com is a great home to go to as well. Um, but uh, we also have a Medium series that we just put up on the Spaces of Founders where we're doing the storytelling of the inclusive entrepreneurs, and we welcome people to that page as well. But at the end of the day, what I want to ask is no matter who you are out there or what your background is or what you care about, I hope you're doing something to get in the arena and make change. Get in the arena, be fearless, make Absolutely. change. Absolutely. There you go, Chris. <laughs> Everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. Thank you for so Thanks, much for joining Chris. us. It's been fun. This is fun. All sitting in the sunlight and everything. So um, we'll talk to you next time, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you.